Welcome to Southeast Asia's Growth Leaders, a podcast dedicated to the Southeast Asia high growth and early stage scene, where we ask industry leaders and experts for their experiences, insights, and advice on how to build and scale sustainable businesses in the region. My name is Sam Randall, and I'm a partner with True Search. True is the world's leading executive search platform for technology and tech-enabled companies. Since our inception, we have partnered with tech startups throughout their growth from pre-seed to post-IPO, with over 300 search professionals in 14 offices across North America, Europe, Middle East, and Asia, we have a modern and innovative approach working with the founder and investor community to advise and assist in successfully scaling their businesses. With a decade of Southeast Asia search experience in technology, I lead the high growth and early stage practice for True in the region. I help startups through high growth stages with advice on talent and hiring, as well as providing search for co-founders, leaders, technical experts. This week on the podcast, we are delighted to welcome Michele Ferrario. Michele is the co-founder and CEO of StashAway, which is a digital wealth management platform that offers investment and cash management portfolios for both retail and accredited investors. StashAway was founded in 2016 in Singapore. Operating in both Singapore and Malaysia, StashAway has capital market services license for retail fund management from both the MAS and the Securities Commission of Malaysia. To date, the company has raised over 20 million USD in investments across four rounds of funding. Prior to founding StashAway, Michele was the group CEO of Zalora, where he was responsible for growing the business 15x to becoming the undisputed leader in the market. Before Zalora, he founded the Italian and Pakistani operations of Rocket Internet, launching five companies in these two countries. Michele joins me on the podcast this week to talk about his experiences in scaling some of the most well-known brands in Southeast Asia, the importance of people, setting the right culture early on, and the stresses of fundraising. Michele, thank you very much for coming on the show. How have you been? How have you, how have you and the team been coping with, with lockdown? It's, it's been good. Uh, it's been, to be honest, better than I would have expected in terms of coping with the, cop, with the lockdown. Both personally, I've been way more productive than I expected, uh, as well as I think uh, from a team perspective. In practice, we moved from having three offices to having 78 offices, which, uh, cre- <laughs> which creates quite a bit of complexity. But again, being a purely digital company, I think we actually luckier than others in terms of how easy it was to move everything remote. Yeah. And I guess going forward, are you, um, are you going to be looking to work from home more? Is this something that's quite sustainable for you guys? So we are actually, I actually uh, uh, created a small uh, working group that is uh, drafting uh, long-term policies that go into the direction of being more flexible than we used to be on this topic. We don't have yet an answer. I don't think, that, um, I don't think saying everybody can work from home anytime, anywhere works at our stage. Uh, I think uh, you require a bit of a more thoughtful approach on saying, you know, in which cases it's fine. Can people, you know, work from home part of the week or can people work from home for a few months because they want to, you know, they are from Germany and want to spend a couple of months back there uh, in Germany. And we're working on it. We don't have yet a policy, but we're working on it. Yeah, so the short answer to your question is yes. I think we will have a bit of a more flexible policies on uh, remote work. Okay. And you mentioned, obviously, your productivity has gone up, which I think is impressive, given that you've got sort of three kids in the house as well there. Um. <laughs> you know, so that, honestly, this is my wife making the magic. So some, and, I don't have, and the worst case, I don't have a space. So I actually, I work in the bedroom. So I move <laughs> my table from uh, the, the, the table where I have breakfast from the terrace to the bedroom in the morning, and then I move it back in the evening. Uh, but my kids have been very good. And they, you know, my, uh, they're not coming in too much. So uh, let's see if it happens during the podcast. So you're going to have somebody. Yeah, yeah I, I have a similar situation here. I'm, I'm set up. My, my office is, is sort of firmly in the corner of the bedroom. Um, so, so yeah, I, I, I hear you on that. So, um, look, great. I, I guess through to, to the course of the, the, the show, we're going to go into a bit of a background on, on yourself and then really do a deep dive on Stash Away. Um, so perhaps we can go back to, to some of the earlier sort of times. You, you've got, a, obviously, a fascinating background. Um, as we mentioned in the intro, you spent half your career in financial services, half now in consumer internet businesses. First job out of uni into McKinsey. Perhaps you can talk me through sort of your journey from uh, from there and how you ended up moving from financial services into consumer internet. Well, yeah, absolutely. So I, as you mentioned, I started at McKinsey. I'm Italian, so I started at McKinsey in Italy. Uh, and uh, uh, that was kind of a natural choice. I was a good student. I got an offer from McKinsey. To be honest, there was not a lot of better options in Italy. And so it was an obvious thing to do. 
Um, and uh, I did uh, kind of spend some time in McKinsey in Italy. Then after my MBA, I spent some time in McKinsey in New York. So I moved to the US. Uh, and uh, in total, I spent around four years in McKinsey. And it was a great time. I learned a lot. Uh, and if you asked me in the beginning what I wanted to do when I, when I, when I became older, I would have told you I want to be a partner at McKinsey. Uh, obviously, that didn't happen. I changed my mind. Uh, but, uh, but I was kind of, I liked it. So I, it was something I was actually very comfortable with. And looking back, there are a few things I think are very relevant to my job today that I learned there. Uh, one is, I would say the most important is probably work ethic. So, you know, the fact that in my first job, it was normal to work 12, 14 hours a day, uh, that kind of uh, made me think that that's normal. And, uh, <laughs> and, uh, and, uh, and I still kind of, I don't have an issue in working 10, 12, 14 hours a day. Uh, obviously, there are uh, other issues on uh, kind of uh, making sure, you know, I spend enough time with my, my wife and my kids. But from a work perspective, you know, that's part of me. And I think it's, a, it's part of the reason why I, I, know I do what I do. The second thing is, I think it helped me structure even further my, uh, uh, the way I think and the way I communicate. I'm analytical by nature, but I, I'm not super structuring my communication by nature. I think it's something I learned at McKinsey. And then I decided to move on and go into private equity. At the time, private equity was very cool. So I decided to move back to Italy, join a small market uh, private equity fund. So investing in uh, privately owned companies. Uh, spent three years. I got the timing wrong because I signed before Lehman Brothers and joined after Lehman Brothers. <laughs> so as you can imagine, so my originally my job was supposed to be investing in new companies. What actually happened in my job was uh, kind of uh, renegotiating that and help companies stay afloat, which in a hindsight was actually helpful. But at the time, I was yeah. not very happy about. So things I learned from there is one, the importance of cash, which is yeah. something as a consultant you have no idea about. And two is the importance of legal contracts and the ability to read contracts, negotiate contracts, understand clauses. Again, super important for being an entrepreneur. Absolutely something you never look at if you are a consultant. So it was a kind of a good stepping stone. And then my career changed completely because I received a call from Rocket Internet. Uh, and, uh, and then kind of a second, second part of my career started from there. Sure. So I guess how did, um, I mean, it's, it's, it's fascinating that um, the, the work that you did sort of with the private equity company immediately after, uh, after the GFC, uh, it sounds like it's really, really good foundations for then building a company. It's like really looking at what makes companies successful, what keeps companies alive through, through difficult times and then how to restructure and build those. So that, that sounds like a really interesting um, uh, sort of time. Um, what were the sort of companies you were looking at in, in, in the private equity? What types of businesses were they? Oh, this was like a, a mid-market growth equity. In practice, we're looking at profitable companies. Uh, the, what, uh, kind of what we used to call the kind of a, a pocket multinational. So smaller, small, the, the classic Italian small companies that actually have a lot of presence abroad. Uh, I spent most of my, my time uh, in uh, one company that actually uh, manufactured and sold automation for uh, gates. If you actually... Uh, you know, if in, in Southeast Asia, if you go around and you look at condos and you look at yeah. who are the manufacturer of gates, you'll find that most of them are actually made in Italy for some reasons. Okay. Uh, okay. And uh, like there is a three or four brands. And uh, I, you know, with the, with the company I was working the most with is actually a very tiny brand into that uh, that segment. Okay. Okay. So Interesting. Nothing to do with what I do today. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> but but great, great foundations. Um, and how how did Rocket Internet? How did you get onto Rocket Internet's sort of radar? What talk me through that process and that yeah. journey? Yeah. So a former colleague of mine from McKinsey, New York. She was actually kind of my boss on a project. A German lady. She gave me a call and say, Hey, uh, I have left. McKinsey, uh, two years ago, I founded a company, didn't go well. I moved to Russia, joined a company called Rocket Internet, and now I'm building two companies for them in Russia. Uh, we want to launch one of them in Italy as well. Do you know somebody that could do it? And uh, I gave them a couple of names of people that I knew that could potentially be interested. And then three days later, I wrote back to her and said, hey, maybe I'm interested. You know, I'm actually not having the time of my life uh, in private equity. This sounds quite exciting. I mean, if you're doing it, you were my boss, I guess, you know, I, you know, I, I know you are hardworking, smart person, etc. Maybe, maybe it's something that interests me. So, uh, so in practice, uh, I sent my CV and she sent it to uh, Rocket in Germany. And then uh, Oliver Summer, who's the founder of Rocket, gave me a call and said, hey, forget about uh, the Italian company. We actually want to launch Rocket in Italy. Okay. Uh, so it's a kind of a different discussion that I was yeah. having with my, my former colleague. And uh, that sounds very exciting, right? So it was uh, you know, the way I think about it is that 
what the one thing I didn't like about McKinsey and private equity is that I thought I was a bit late, meaning that it yeah. was great to be a McKinsey in the early 90s. Yeah. Uh, when the offices were small and work were super strategic, I was there in the early 2000s and I, I felt I was 10, 15 years late. And private equity, similarly, I was, I was there in the late 2000s and it was great to be there in late 90s, early 2000s. And what it means is that there were partners that were maybe seven, eight years older than me that yeah. I, you know, I felt there was a ceiling above me. So when Rocket yeah. called, I thought this is my time to be ahead of the wave. So internet in Italy was still super premature. So Amazon did not have an office in Italy, just to give you a sense at the time. Yeah. And so it was very early days. And so I thought this is my chance to be ahead of the way. When I called yeah. my dad to tell him I was leaving uh, private, the private equity firm I was working to join this random German uh, venture builder, uh, it's, he screamed at me telling me I was crazy. <laughs> but I guess in the inside, that was a good choice. Yeah, <laughs> excellent. Um, and so you, you joined Rocket to set up Milan. Um, you. To, to, well, you know, talk me through that that growth journey and and how that then brought you to to Singapore and to Zalora. Yeah, so my so as I mentioned, my job at Rocket was you know I founded Rocket Italy with another guy, so we co-founded it, uh, Tito, and our job was to uh, launch new companies in Italy. So in practice, I was hiring what Rocket calls founders, which are not really founders, they're more kind of managing directors and help them survive the craziness of the first three to six months, help them build a core team. And then I was going to move on to the next project. So I've launched two companies in Italy. The first project was the one that my German friend in Russia was doing in Russia. So, you know, I actually hired the two founders uh, of uh, a company called Westwing, uh, the two founders of Westwing in Italy. And, um, and then after a few months, uh, uh, we were doing well, uh, apparently. And uh, Rocket asked uh, us to take over Pakistan as well. Uh, I know it does make any sense uh the, the reason was that in theory i think it was supposed to be under the uae office which was uh, recently stopped but really you have too many things going on and so they were yeah. looking for somebody else to kind of help and so we yeah. took it over from italy and so tito and i started to spend uh, kind of a couple of weeks a month in pakistan going back and forth and we launched yeah. three companies in pakistan uh, a, a kind of a, a, a fashion e-commerce uh, the equivalent of zalora in southeast asia it was called dara yeah. A, yeah. uh, a general merchandiser called Azmalo, the equivalent of Lazada, and Fupanda. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And, and then Azmalo and Darat actually got merged later. So Darat yeah, yeah, yeah. is now owned by Alibaba, it's, and Fupanda right, is part yeah. of the global group. Uh, wow. and, then, and then after around a year or so, uh, so that was a busy year. So I launched two companies yeah. in Italy, three in Pakistan, <laughs> got married in the same year. Uh, and, uh, uh, and, uh, honeymoon, and after, honeymoon in Pakistan. <laughs> yeah, no, no, no. Yeah, but I wouldn't, I would not be married uh, if, that, <laughs> if that had happened. And um, toward the end of the year, uh, Rock, Oliver Summer asked, uh, asked me if I wanted to move to Singapore and kind of take off my multi-company hat. So the, yeah. the job of launching new companies and rather focus on one company only. Uh, that one company was Zalora, which was already yeah. launched. So the company was around yeah. one year old. So I didn't yeah. found it. Uh, and, uh, and so I became the group, group CEO of Zalora, which is a fashion e-commerce operating with headquarters in Singapore and operating out of uh, all of Southeast Asia. Uh, and then I spent like, the next four years uh, trying to scale up Zalora while at the same time making sense of it. Zalora was uh, quite a bit of a Mess, messy organization when I joined. And uh, so part of the job was not just scaling, but was also kind of a rationalize and making sense of it. Yeah. Okay. And I, I guess what was the, what were the key challenges in those early days at Zalora? What, what was, what was wrong with the company? What did you have to do to turn it around? And then how did you go about reaching such, uh, you know, a broad market with such huge amounts of growth? Because I think you grow scaled 15 times on the bottom line. You grew up to, you know, a thousand plus people. It's impressive yeah. growth. Um, so in terms of people, actually, when I joined, uh, the company was 10 months old and the company had already 1,500 people in seven countries. So I think that answers your first question. What was wrong? Yeah. <laughs> so as you can imagine, when you have you, when you hire 1,500 people in 10 months uh, in seven different countries, A, you probably didn't kind of put a lot of attention on recruitment. Uh, and, B, and B, you definitely didn't have any time to actually build a culture. So the reality is that nobody really knew what kind of what was the direction. Nobody knew what was the core values. Nobody uh, knew kind of a, a, kind of a, exactly what was keeping us together. And at the same time, uh, a lot of people were probably not up to the task. And so I guess uh, and the problem is that to fix 
something like that, it takes an enormous amount of time. It's much easier to build it right from scratch than to fix this. And and so you know, the reality is that a lot of the focus over the next four years uh, has been on uh, how can we rationalize this. When I left, we still had 1,500 employees, even if the kind of top line was 15 times larger, the yeah. number of people was actually similar. So we actually kind of managed to make it make some sort of sense. I don't think the job was done when I left. Uh, I, I know that kind of uh, people that I uh, that kind of took over from me had to continue doing uh, the same job because, as I mentioned, it's incredibly time consuming and difficult to uh, kind of fix people's and culture issues. I think it's something that you need to get right from the beginning. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it, wow, that's I, I, I'm staggered by by fifteen hundred people in ten months. I think um, I think that must be some sort of record. Um, it's um, and how how do you start to fix that? How do you begin to unpick the the, the you know what what has been created and start instilling a a, a sort of a, a better culture and a, a better set of values for the business? Look at the end of the game, culture starts from people, right? So you know if you ask me what I do today, what I would tell you is that I I we put an incredible amount of attention into hiring and. Uh, and that's how you build culture by hiring the right people that fit within the culture. And and uh, you know, 99% of culture building is hiring. 1% you can probably influence. So the problem is that when you are in a situation where you already hire 1,500 people, and you you're not, and and the, and the company was growing very strongly because the, we, we were investing heavily in marketing. We were actually the only real player in the market, so yeah. the company was growing like crazy. And so you can't just say, okay, let me actually kind of get rid of 1,500 people and start from scratch. I mean, it's, uh, the train is going. Now you're on the train. You need to kind of try to find a way to make sense of it as the train goes. And, um, uh, and so I, uh, I don't have a recipe for that. I think it's very complex. I think you need to start, you know, person by person. I think you need to go top down, which is something yeah. I don't think I did well. Uh, so if I had to do it today, I would do it better, I guess. You know, okay. uh, I was also, I was 31 years old. So I was also out of my league by a, a, probably a million miles, you know, being you know CEO of a company with 1,500 employees. Uh, I, I don't think I was ready at the time. Uh, so if I had to do it again, I think the suggestion I would give to somebody doing it now is start top down. So start by being by very, that? very decisive at the top. So okay. change people at the top and then yeah. that will actually trickle down quite fast, which, is, which I didn't do, which I think okay. I should have done. Yeah. Okay. So really, it's um really understanding who should be your management team, who your key players are, who your 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 star team, yeah. who you can work with, who you can't, and then build that build that in in your vision or build people aligned to that vision, and then that that was a much quicker way of building. Okay. Exactly, because I think if you do it top down, then those people will take care of the rest, right? So yeah. and and those are the you know if if you if you die, if you do it right at the top, then the bottom will get it so, sorted by itself in a way. Uh, again, uh, I think experience helps in that case. And I mean, it must have been an incredible um, learning time for yourself coming into a business that big across that many locations. And then I guess, had you had much exposure to Southeast Asia prior to that? Because coming into a business with that that scale across so many different countries in Southeast Asia, and obviously the countries are individually so culturally diverse from from each other. I mean, that must have been quite a an interesting time to get your head around the that that diversity yeah so i did i didn't have any exposure before other than uh, coming for a couple of trips to southeast asia like uh, <laughs> summer trips so i don't think that counts and yeah. uh uh no so i think you know at the end of the game if you are managing such a complex organization and that's true even you know even now uh, where we are only you know 80 people in three countries uh i i don't think you can think that you're gonna do it all by yourself so what you need to rely on is on the expertise experience and and uh, and skill sets of the people around you and uh, and that's particularly true when you are in seven countries with 1500 people so the reality is that that's why it's so important to have the right people in the right culture because you need to be able to trust you know the points of views of uh, of everybody in your team and leverage their knowledge and uh, and use them to complement your own knowledge and experiences Okay. And you mentioned obviously the top-down approach was one one thing you would have done differently. What what are the what were your key learnings other than this from that from that time? You know, what did you take away from from that time? Uh, I think you know my key learnings is that governance matter. So I I thought that governance didn't matter. I thought at the time that it was more important to kind of keep going, keep running, and uh, get stuff done somehow. What I learned is that kind of the governance chain of command and uh, who kind of a quality of people in every top leadership role is actually incredibly important. Okay. 
Okay. Okay. And that, that, that's interesting. So it sounds like you really, you've got to build the right team, got to build the right process. And I, I would again, imagine that building that level of governance and that level of process into a business is much easier um, before you scale to 1500 people. Than, absolutely. Than, absolutely. Than it's much, you know, uh, it's, you know, a million times easier to do it from scratch uh, than to do it when you're running. I think the only way to do it when you're running is actually take very decisive, decisive action uh, at the top. But then, you know, you need to think about the constraints you have, you know, you are, a, a super fast growing company, burning a lot of money. So you need to raise a lot of money, yeah. you, it, which means you're always fundraising. And if you tell to a VC, look, I just changed all of my management team. Usually it's not a recipe to raise money. And so, uh, you know, that's why doing it as you run, it's very, very difficult. You need to get it right from the very beginning. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. And then, so you came to the end of Zillora and what, what would the, the thought process of moving across and starting starting your own your own thing. So I spent four years at Delora, and then uh, toward the middle of 2016, for a number of reasons, uh, kind of divide, decided to uh, uh, to leave Delora. I, you know, it took me a long, kind of a few months to uh, make it public. Uh, you know, and, uh, the group. We, in the meantime, Delora was merging a global group called Global Fashion Group. So the group found a replacement, and then after uh, after the replacement came on board, I left, and then I started thinking what to do next. Uh, and um, and one of the issues I had as a uh, kind of a person living in Singapore for four years was that I was saving money. The Laura was decently paid, and uh, uh, and I didn't know what to do with it. Meaning I knew because I have a background in finance, but I I didn't get to actually do something with my savings. So I had over time tried to find uh, somebody to help me. In particular, I opened two bank accounts at two premium banks, yeah. and uh, and I realized that they were not. In the business of helping me, but they were in the business of selling me products uh, that are very expensive, and yeah. therefore I didn't like that too much. And uh, yeah. um, and I kept cash, which is also a mistake. Uh, and uh, and so when uh, when I found out about the existence of uh, digital wealth managers in the United States, yeah. uh, I I learned the term robo advisors. I googled robo advisor Singapore with the idea of finding one to invest my own money. And this is okay. when I was still at Zalora. It was April two thousand sixteen, uh, yeah. and and I couldn't find any. And, uh, and then so one a few months later, I was uh, in the process of leaving Zalora, I kind of came back to that idea. And I thought, wait, if there's nobody doing this, I know it's an issue because I felt it on my own skin. I know I talked yeah. to quite a few people and that's a widespread problem. Can I can I actually do this? And so I did some research. I thought it made sense. And so I started looking for people to do it well, to do it with. Okay. And so okay. I, uh, I then met uh, Nino, who's one yeah. of my two co-founders in July 2016. Sure. And then I met Freddie, who's the other co-founder, yeah. uh, in uh, August 2016, so a month later. So Nino is our CTO today, and uh, Freddie is our chief investment officer. And so yeah. toward the month of uh, July and August, we kind of uh, discussed and we decided to do it. So I officially left Zalora at the end of September. Uh, yeah. We incorporated the company in September and started working full-time in October 2016. And now it's uh, going to be close to uh, close to four years soon. Wow. And so... Talk me through the journey from the, I guess, the ideation and the the, the the beginning of the idea stage through to actually deciding to start reaching out to people. Um, you know, how, that, that sounds like there was a bit of a journey. What At what point did you decide, do you know what, I really want to do this. I really need to go and find people. It was a fairly quick process, to be honest. So I've announced, so the decision to leave the Laura was made in uh, like April 2016. Yeah. Uh, but I made it publicly internally on the 21st of June, 2016. And on the 22nd of June, I realized that I needed to start thinking about what to do next. Uh, and, uh, and so that's when I started thinking about, uh, uh, and this came, I had a couple of entrepreneurial ideas. Uh, plus I was also thinking maybe I can, you know, I can join another, you know, another growing company and help them grow. Right. Yeah. Uh, and um, uh, in fact, I actually had a conversation with uh, your colleagues. Uh, yeah, in, uh, uh, they were looking for somebody in Europe, and uh, okay. uh, and uh, but but I you know the more I and so I talked to quite a few people, including your colleagues. And as I as I talked to people, I realized that what I wanted to do was build. And uh, and and in the meantime, I was thinking about this idea, and I bounced off the idea with a few people I knew, some investors, some friends, and uh, trying to understand whether it was fundable or not. And uh, and then I started looking for somebody, but it was quite quick. Like I actually met, uh, so I I sent an email to Nino end of June, so maybe ten days later. And uh, did, did and you I know met, him? No, so did I you never know met him. No, I never met okay. him. 
but I was introduced to him a year earlier by okay. the same lady that introduced me to Rocket. So he okay. was he was her co-founder at in Russia for the two companies <laughs> I mentioned earlier. Uh, and I never met him, uh, but he moved to Singapore following his wife as it was a, she was in a rotational program. And a year earlier, she put us in touch. So the the the, the lady I mentioned earlier, and uh, uh, and so we had a chat at the phone uh, where I told him, look, you could be the CTO of Zalora, but I have one. It's great. So I, I'm sorry, I can't help. And at the time, I didn't have a strong network, so I couldn't help him kind of introduce mm -hmm. him. In, in Singapore, I was, very, I was very much focused internally in the Zalora problem. So I, I didn't have as much a public role as I have today, for instance. And so my network was not particularly extensive, and so I couldn't help him too much. So I kind of reached back to him and said, hey, are you still in Singapore? What are you doing? Do you want to met, meet for coffee? And my idea was, if he was looking for something a year ago, he's probably, he probably doing something. In the process of doing this, you probably met a lot of people. He might introduce me to somebody that will introduce me to somebody that will introduce me to somebody that hopefully uh, is the right person to do something with. And so I met him. He was working remotely, actually, for, uh, for a project he was not 100% convinced of. And I told him what I wanted, what I had in mind. So we had a coffee one day. We had a coffee the next day. We had a coffee the third day. We had a coffee the fourth day. And by the fifth day, I convinced him that actually this was a good idea. He knew the business model before. Uh, okay. because he knew it from Europe. Uh, he, uh, because he was working remotely, he has his money kind of in Europe, not here. So he actually managed yeah. kind of his savings there. Uh, and he was shocked that nobody was doing it in Singapore. And so uh, he kind of uh, a week later, we kind of decided, okay, why don't we do that? And then I started looking for an investment guy. Uh, yeah. And then I did a search on LinkedIn. So I reached out okay. to like 30 people and uh, invited them for coffee and, uh, and didn't like any of them. Uh, until one of the, and then Nino was looking for a UX designer. And so okay. until one of the UX designers that Nino was interviewing told us, oh, you need to meet with, to meet with this guy. Uh, and he introduced us to Freddie. So yeah. I met Freddie for a coffee at uh, Starbucks at uh, the Cate. Uh, and it was a, supposed to be a one hour coffee chat. It became a three and a half hours problem solving session where we argued with each other. We disagreed with each other. But in the course of that disagreement, we actually kind of, also slowly convinced each other that some of the other person idea actually kind of made sense. Yeah. Uh, and, uh, and, uh, and so I actually walked out of that thinking, okay, now we have a team, let's just make it happen. And what was it that, uh, it, it sounded like you have a very sort of strong relationship with, with both of them, and, uh, but what was it about those guys that made you want to start a business with them? And what was it about the other, the other 30, 40 people that you met that you were like, these, yeah. these guys are, are right? So, so in both of, for both of them, uh, I I like them. So when you re recruit, you know, uh, and it's uh, kind of not the right word, you know, uh, I'm, uh, uh, or you're looking for found for co-founders that you want to build something yeah. with. You're not going to have a recruiting process, right? It's not yeah. a recruitment, really. Like you're actually is it's more similar to finding a, a girlfriend or a boyfriend than to find a, a kind of a, somebody to hire. It's a, yeah. and and therefore. I, for me, I guess the process was much more gut feeling than a structured interview process. And uh, so with, uh, you know, for both of them, I just thought that it looked like they were incredibly accomplished and incredibly knowledgeable in their own domain. So Nino as a tech guy, you know, built several companies before, a couple of them incredibly successful, a couple of them not successful, which is, I think, great because you learn from yeah. those. You know, and Freddie has spent 20 years uh, managing billions of dollars for institutional investors. So he was, uh, you know, worked at, you know, was a managing director at Nomura, where he was the global head of derivative strategy. He has been at Morgan Stanley, at Citi, at uh, Lehman Brothers, at Merrill Lynch. Uh, so, you know, on paper, they were very knowledgeable. I yeah. then liked them as people, as I had coffees with both of them. I kind of, a, you know, I felt some sort of a kind of a uh, closeness to them in the way we we thought about things. And then, you know, I think what I like to do is I like to discuss problems with people. Also, when I do interviews today, I do case interviews. And the reason I do that is that I like to discuss a problem. And as I, during the course of the discussion, I, I, I kind of get to a point where I understand whether I like the person or not. And in, the, in their case, I, I was not interviewing them, but we were talking about how could we this company build? How can the product look like? And I thought that conversation was very positive and was going in the right direction. And, and therefore, I thought it was... Uh, you know, I just like them. I just enjoy the conversation. And then I think it's uh, kind of what made it work. What I didn't like about the uh, kind of the other 30 kind of uh, potential uh, investment, uh, chief investment officers I, I, I talked to, 
you know, I was looking for a senior person. So I was looking for managing directors and uh, of, of banks and people that went through the global financial crisis. So at least 10 years of experience and uh, ended up with Fred Dress, 20 years of experience. But uh, when I talked to these people, it felt like, uh, first of all, they had very cushy jobs at this point in time, uh, yeah. where, you know, a lot of people working for them, incredibly high cash salaries, uh, very difficult to get get out of that first. So uh, second, I didn't see themselves kind of rolling up their sleeves and opening an Excel file and kind of kind of uh, trying to think about uh, things in in a bit more detail. Uh, and and third, uh, this is more technical. Uh, we were I was looking for uh, somebody that had an asset allocation background, so that understood every asset classes. While I realized that most people in banking or in investment have a very yeah. specific domain, so they are either expert yeah. on. Uh, Vietnamese bonds or Asian equities or whatever. So uh, that's kind of the more technical uh, angle. Yeah. Okay. And whilst you were building the team and the, the three of you came together, uh, how how early did you just start discussing the sort of definition of roles and responsibilities, and how much emphasis did you put on that in the early in the early stage? Was it was it was there a very natural delineation? Okay, your your investments, your tech, I'm business. Or was did you spend time defining those roles? So we didn't spend time doing it. And perhaps I would actually recommend to people to do it. In our case, it was very natural and it was never a problem because the, our competencies are so obviously defined. You know, Nino spent all of his life building tech companies, he's a computer scientist, and that's what he does. Yeah. Freddie yeah. spent all of his life managing money, he's an investor, and that's what he does. And I'm a more of a generalist. Uh, you know, I, I have some marketing competencies. I, you know, I just managed, I, I built and scaled companies, and therefore that's my. That's my domain. So, yeah, I think it was a natural division. But I, especially for people that may have more similar backgrounds, I think actually sitting down and really deciding who does what uh, is very important and potentially have, you know, a yearly checkpoint where you actually reassess that. I think it's very important. Okay. And so the three of you came together, you decided to go ahead with the business. How, how difficult was it to get backing and how difficult was it to start growing the business at that early stage? So uh, we raised two rounds of financing early on. One was a seed round, which we raised immediately. So we started working in October. We raised uh, 800,000 Singapore dollars in November. Uh, so it was immediately. That was based on uh, you know three smiling faces and an idea. And that was actually an easy round to raise uh, for two reasons. One is because I think our resumes and our kind of uh, references were very positive. And yeah. secondly, because we actually invested in the round, uh, a significant yeah. part of the round. And so that obviously kind of aligned our interest. So that was, a, it took a week to raise the round. Uh, wow. And uh, that was very easy. But then we tried to raise a 3 million Singapore dollars round uh, in a kind of a early 2017. And that was pre-revenue because yeah. we needed the money for the license. And without yeah. the license, we couldn't launch. Yeah. And that was incredibly difficult. I actually spoke to 125 investors. Uh, and got 124 no. Actually, <laughs> I was actually 125 no's, and then uh, kind of I went back to them because I thought it was a no, but it was more like a maybe. And so, okay. so kind of, uh, kind of went back, tried to convince them, and then uh, kind of we agreed on a lower valuation that we were looking for, uh, but still we agreed on kind of, and they actually wrote a three million dollars check, uh, so they covered the full round. And and then on top of it, we actually had two super angels that decided to join, so we actually raised a bit more at the end. Uh, but that was a very tough one. Yeah, and how how long did that process take? Because I can imagine 125 meetings with investors. You you're not going to do that in a couple of weeks. That must have been a quite a long period and yeah. really quite yeah. sort of challenging to you. I think I started looking. I started reaching out to people in uh, January 2017, and uh -huh. we closed the round in May. Uh, and uh, and uh, I think most of the conversation happened between January and March. And then in kind of in April, I think it's then when I got a breakthrough of, uh, so what happened in April, we received the in-principle approval from the MES. Okay. And with that, I kind of went back to the kind of warmer leads I had constructed at that point. And all of them told me no. And then I was able to kind of convince uh, uh, Francis Rosario and Aaron Rosario from Asia Capital Advisors to actually back us. And uh, uh, they've been you know, instrumental to make the company start and, uh, and definitely to grow it where it is today. 
And how did you keep your, your spirits up through that time? I mean, it sounds like really, really challenging time. Um, was there, were there any points where you're like, I'm done, I'm out, this is me, I'm, you know, I'm going to get a job? Like, <laughs> No, I, I, no, there was never a point where I got there because I, I, I'm optimistic by nature, I guess. So I thought sooner or later <laughs> I was going to crack it. Uh, but yes, it was tough times. And actually, so in, uh, I kind of knew that this was going to happen. So in January, before starting the process, I remember having a conversation with Nino and Freddie and telling them, look, I'm going to start fundraising. Successful fundraising looks like this. You speak to 100 people, 99 say no, one says yes. Unsuccessful fundraising, you speak to 100 people, 100, 100 people say no. So for 99 times, it's exactly the same. So I'll need some psychological support. That's what I told them. I was close enough. It actually took a bit more than 100. Uh, yeah. <laughs> and, um, uh, but yes, I, was, I guess the fact that I was prepared, it was not a shock to me. Uh, yeah. In a way, also because you know I had been fundraising before, so I knew how you know uh, challenging it was, and yeah. I and I knew how was the VC scene in Singapore, so I knew that we were kind of falling in a bit of a vacuum. We're raising a very too large round for a seed, yeah. and uh, and we were way too early for a Series A players, so we were kind of falling a little bit in the middle where nobody actually invests, and I knew that, so that I knew it was going to be complex. Be tough, okay. Um, and what was the the, the... The core products that you you took to the the investors at that point that was the robo advisory. Can you further, I guess, for the sake of everybody listening, can you talk me through what Stash Away does and what what it is and what it was at that at that point? Yeah. So our mission has always been, and the way we describe it internally, uh, has always been from day one to empower people to build wealth for the long term. And so the product was and is today. Obviously, today is way more sophisticated, but uh, was even at the beginning a platform that makes it simple and cost-effective to invest intelligently. So there are kind of three pillars, simplicity, cost-effectiveness, and intelligence of the, of the investment framework. And those are the three key pillars we started working on early on. And we went live with a, a kind of a set of investment portfolios from low risk to high risk uh, that help people build their uh, kind of a retirement plan, their kids' university plan, or their safety net. And then over time, obviously, now the platform is significantly more sophisticated uh, and uh, we have had a few, a couple of new products. So now we have a cash management product called Stashway Simple. We have an income portfolio and also kind of the platform now helps a bit more on financial planning. And there are a few more features than we had in the beginning. But the core mission remains the same of empowering people to build wealth in the long term. Uh, so I was trying to solve my problem of where to invest my money. So that's, that's, that was still the, the, core, uh, the core problem statement. Okay, and that's that's really interesting. So you, you that, that that vision was was really prominent early on, and I guess has that then gone on to inform all of the all of the decisions you've been making around product lines and what you're you're trying to do from there. Does everything ultimately tie back into that mission? And do you think it's critical for businesses to have a a very clearly defined vision and mission mission statement like that? Yes and yes. So yes, uh, it would, our kind of mission statement, or you know, it doesn't need to be a mission statement. It needs to be a very clear idea of what are, what are you trying to do for your clients. So we are trying to empower them to build wealth, right? So you you know, uh, you need to have a clear idea of that, and and uh, and then you need to make product decisions that go into the direction of helping your clients, kind of a, a in in our case, empower them to build wealth. So uh, we have looked in the past at potentially uh, doing things that were kind of a, not specifically tied into this, but rather adjacent. And then we decided not to do it because we thought it was not core to our core mission. How did you go around then defining the overall investment strategy? Was that, you know, you have the th core, three core pillars, you have the business plan. Did you then try and create scenarios for the investors that you were expecting to bring in or were they based around your own problems? How did you go about that investment strategy and, and that portfolio strategy? So, you know, we leveraged, uh, you know, 20 years of academia and 20 years of uh, Freddie's career and experience to build a proprietary asset allocation framework, which we call ERA, Economic Regime Based Asset Allocation. Uh, we also uh, have built an advisory committee with a couple of, uh, or actually kind of four very experienced people that have helped us in the way to kind of build the early uh, idea behind the investment framework. Uh, Freddie really led the effort there with a little bit of my advice, push, and uh, kind of uh, just, I, I just try to be a sounding board and the help of the advisory committee on certain topics. But uh, we didn't, while we built it from scratch, 
we really built it on 20 years of academia, uh, academic studies and 20 years of actual uh, kind of returns experience from a number of funds globally, including uh, funds that Freddie has managed himself. And I guess how how do you really position yourself differently from other from other robo advisories or from other from other sort of products? You know, there's uh, people like yourself have issues that you, they have the options of going to IFAs or they can go to fund supermarket and they, they can sort of help themselves. I guess how do you how do you position yourselves well in in this in this sort of market? Yeah, so I think we are we try to be to excel in uh, all of the key areas. Uh, if I have to name so two, we say the two most important ones is. One, our uh, investment framework is significantly more sophisticated than anything you can actually get access to through the, your normal traditional channels, through an IFA or your relationship manager at the bank, uh, and also compared to anything I've seen from the other digital players. So that's one area. The second area is that we are a product tech company. So yeah. you know, 50% of my payroll goes to technology. And, uh, and if you are a customer, you will see that. We, you know, the, it's a world-class product, you know, both on the app as well as on the desktop. It's just, you know, uh, what you would expect in any other job, what you would expect in the United States. Uh, and, uh, and I don't think there is anybody else that is remotely close to where we are in terms of sophistication uh, of the user experience of uh, also the customer client support. You know, you call client support, we pick up the phone in eight seconds. We have a WhatsApp line. Uh, to talk to us, to, to our client engagement team. So, you know, there are a number of things on the product side and on the services around it uh, that I think are ab absolutely unique to, uh, to, to us, in the, at least in this region of the world. And have you ever considered, because a lot of products seem to have a B2B2C approach, and there seems to be a lot of robo-advisory platforms which, which will white-label and go, go you know, to, to, to banks to help them. Uh, have you ever considered that approach, or is, it always, is the plan always to be a B2C company? The plan was always to be a B2C company. And uh, during my 125 uh, uh, pitch to investors, 50 told me that I, was, that I, wa that I needed to go B2B. Uh, okay. and, uh, and, uh, and we stick to our, what we thought. We thought there was a gigantic gap in the market at the consumer level. And we thought that if we build something for the banks, the value proposition would be tremendously diluted to the end customer because the banks have a gigantic cannibalization problem. And therefore, yeah. they don't want to cannibalize their super expensive unit trust or, uh, or investment uh, sales pitches. And therefore, we, we stick to what we wanted to do, even if at a certain point it sounded much, much easier to actually raise money and therefore build a company bit to bit side. And honestly, looking back, was probably the smartest decision we made. Yeah, yeah, I, I can definitely... I can definitely agree with that. I think it, it being core to that product idea is a, you know, a really sort of sensible play on, on on something like this. Now, what are the plans for the business going forward? Uh, so we are, you know, we just started, right? So it's uh, we're 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 obviously we are the largest digital wealth manager in the region, uh, but the idea is that we want to keep uh, improving uh, the product. We want to uh, potentially uh, increase the number of distribution channels. Uh, and uh, and lastly, we want to go to new geographies. So I think uh, the kind of new kind of improve and 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 add new products and services, uh, add potential some distribution channels, and uh, and lastly uh, expand the geographical reach. I think there's the three areas. That's the way I think about development over time. Okay, and, and from a geographical reach, are you are you focused on sort of Southeast Asia first, or do you have a product that you think, oh, let's take it to the US, let's take it to Europe, let's 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 grow this globally? Uh, we are not looking at global. Let's say we look at Asia, uh, and we are opportunistic in Asia. So we there are you know we look at where which markets are ready uh, from a regulatory perspective, which markets have enough kind of a large enough size and and demand for it, and then which markets have kind of a, the worst. Uh, uh, offer from the incumbents, and therefore that we yeah. can actually go in and, and really change. So we we are kind of we have an Asia focus with a very uh, kind of a, uh, opportunistic approach. On your leadership style, are there are there any specific business leaders which inspire you, and um, what is it about them that that you you find particularly inspirational? Uh, good question. Um, I don't have like one uh, single role model to be honest. Um, I think uh, probably the best business leaders of our times, I guess, is uh, Jeff Bezos, who was able to 
build a gigantic uh, company that serves everywhere in the world, uh, starting from scratch, uh, you know, 25 years ago. And, uh, and I think uh, from, I never worked with him, so I don't know him directly, but I did uh, work with people that have worked with him. And uh, what I heard is that the focus on the detail, the ability to really uh, distill what is important versus what is not important, uh, these are all kind of uh, incredibly important attributes that I think uh, Jeff Bezos probably mastered. And so there are some yeah. things that Amazon does, like you know, the, the fact that they don't have, they don't use PowerPoint, but they only use vertical documents because it forces you to go into more detail. There are things like this that I think are actually quite helpful as, as a leader. And what do you see as the key aspects of being a successful leader? What are the, what are the key traits for, for you? I think the one and only real responsibility of any leader is to attract, retain, and inspire the right people uh, and, uh, and help them kind of have clear direction and empower them to get stuff done. So, you know, if I have to describe successful leaders, I would always describe their personal traits and the way that, you know, uh, how can they really lead? And so uh, how can they, uh, first of all, attract people? And that's in particular important if you're starting from scratch and therefore you're not, people are not attracted to your company because the company doesn't exist yet. They can only be attracted to you or to your team, yeah. uh, to yeah. your kind of founding team. And so that's uh, very important, but that's true even when you go forward and then you need to retain them. So you need to make sure that they are kind of, they have the right setup to be happy and to, and to uh, kind of progress in their careers. And then obviously as part of that, you need to make sure they are empowered, they have the right tools, they have the right direction to actually uh, do their best and, and be satisfied with that and then build a great company. And, and how have you gone around, I guess, the, the, the self sort of realization, the self-awareness part of being a leader to, to understand that you are providing that to your team? Is there, any, are there anything specifically that you've done to try and um, really encompass that as a, as a leader? To be honest, no, I don't, and I, I don't know how, I'm not sure how good I am in doing everything I just said. I said that was my idealistic, <laughs> idealistic way of kind of how I think about a good leader. Um, no, I, I don't overthink it, to be honest. I, I try to be very natural in my behaviors. And again, you should ask my team whether that works or not. Um, but I, I don't believe in overstructuring. Uh, obviously, taking inspiration by reading books or, or listening to people is good. But I think trying to mimicking other people's behavior actually ends up firing back. So I think you need to be yourself at okay. the end of the game. Okay, so you need to find your own your own way, and there's yeah. only so much you can sort of assimilate yeah. other people's and, behaviors. And, and so. yes, absolutely. And there are successful leaders that are completely different. They simply yeah. will lead different types of people because they will attract different type of people. They will retain different type of people. So you need to kind of understand who you are, be who you are, and then like-minded people will probably go around you. Oh, fascinating. So there's no there's no cookie cutter approach to success. It's it's really horses for courses. Find find your your best way and, and and work there. That's that's really interesting. What advice would you give to current or sort of upcoming founders about starting a business? What you know? What are the top three things that you, they should really they should really focus on? Yeah. So my 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 answer is a, a bit cliche, which is you know people people people. Uh, yeah. The reality is that when you are starting from scratch, you have nothing else. You know. So, you know, it's going to work if you have the right people. It's not going to work if you don't have the right people. Now, once you start having the kind of early group of people, like the co-founders or maybe a team of four, five, six, seven people, uh, then I guess the, the priorities become people, which remains a priority. And then I guess uh, product yeah. uh, and, and also as a, as a CEO, uh, money. So, you know, you may not like it, but as a CEO, part of your responsibility is making sure there is a, cash in the bank to pay salaries at the end of the month. And so fundraising is, it becomes a key responsibility. And to, to finish up, we've got the, the, the quick fire questions. Everybody's favorite part of the podcast. All, all of our listeners love this first section. Um, so five questions. What was the best advice you were given as a startup CEO? Uh, what I just mentioned. So focus on, yeah. you know, get, get, the right, get the right people around you. People. Okay. And what, what was the worst advice you've been given? I mentioned it earlier. I think, uh, uh, the fact that a lot of investors try to convince me to go B2B, uh, I think, I mean, I don't know what would have happened if we did that, but I sure. definitely know that we decided not to do it and things went very well. So, yeah, I think uh, that was a bad advice. Okay, great. And tell me something that's true that almost nobody agrees with you on. So, I don't, now I'm not sure I have 
one answer to that. But I go back to what I said earlier. Uh, if you ask me uh, uh, two years ago, or three years ago, what I would have told you is that the fact that it's possible to convince people that they're better off putting their savings and retirement money in a new company that actually is as interest aligned with you rather than leaving them in an old bank. That's a, that's a gain of the B2B versus B2C logic, right? So nobody, again, yeah. 124 people didn't agree with me, right? So yeah, yeah. almost nobody agreed with me. And I think looking back, it was true. So uh, now I, I don't know what the next one is going to be. So I'll tell you in a few okay. <laughs> okay. We'll have to do a round two on this in a, in a year's time. Um, last couple of questions. What's your favorite restaurant in Singapore? So I have a wife and three kids. And uh, uh -huh. we, don't, we don't have a maid. And so we don't get out a lot. And so my yeah. favorite restaurant is actually home. My wife is an amazing cook. And so and she's Italian like me. So, you know, she's, uh, yeah, I guess my favorite restaurant in Singapore is definitely home. Excellent. And what is your most obscure hobby? Yeah, so I guess I'm not going to be much fun here. Uh, meaning that, as, as I mentioned, you know, uh, I have a wife and three kids and I try to spend as much time as I can there. And I work a lot. So really, yeah. I don't have much hobbies right now. The one thing I, I waste time on uh, is uh, I do give myself a one hour Netflix time before going to bed. And I, as I became addicted to a few series, I guess that's my, it's not obscure, but that's, I guess, my current really uh, kind okay. of a diversion. And I, I guess we can, we can add to the quick five questions. What are you currently watching on Netflix? Uh, I'm uh, watching the last piece of, uh, uh, what is it called? The Casa de Papel. What is it called? The, the heist. Uh, yeah, because I, they just they just uploaded the, the, the last piece. I I watched the first three pieces. Yeah. Now I'm watching the last one. Excellent, uh, Michele. Thank you very very much for your time. It's, a, it's been a real pleasure. Very very fascinating conversation. Um, thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Southeast Asia's Growth Leaders with me, Sam Randall. On the next episode, we are hosting a roundtable discussion featuring the incredible lineup of Rachel Ung, Chief of Staff at Wavemaker Partners, Ollie Wood, Head of Talent at Golden Gate Ventures, and Christian Ballard, Talent Advisor at B Capital Group. On this bumper episode, we will be delving into the pitfalls, trials, tribulations, and things to avoid when hiring as a CEO and founder of a growth stage business. I look forward to seeing you there. Stay safe and farewell. Mm -hmm.